I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. They marched by the tens of thousands in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Chicago, and across the country. Demonstrators, largely peaceful, took to the streets this weekend to protest the death of George Floyd and what many see as the systematic racism that it signifies. And while the protests undoubtedly sent a powerful message about the depths of anger and despair among millions of African Americans and persons of color, it also may have sent another message about the steady collapse of social distancing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Will the past week of protests cause a spike in the numbers of those infected and dying from the disease? And how do public health experts persuade an increasingly restless public from opening up their businesses or going to the beach or attending church services when they see so many protesters congregating in large numbers and walking side by side on crowded streets? We'll discuss with Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner under President Trump, and Kavita Patel, a former Obama administration public health official and Yahoo News contributor on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I, like uh, many of us, were watching the uh, protests yesterday on TV. I didn't go down uh, to observe them firsthand. And they were striking. They were moving at times. And it is true, many were wearing masks. But many were not. And they were crowded together People within, you know, a couple of feet, if not inches of each other after we've been told consistently about the need to stay six feet away from everybody else. And I think this is really going to be could be a uh, inflection point in the whole social distancing effort. In fact, I'm looking at today's Washington Post op-ed column by Megan McArdle, RIP social distancing, making the point that uh, we're going to discuss with uh, doctors Gottlieb and Patel about how do you maintain that message about the virus when so many people are out there ignoring that message. Yeah, I would say that I think people aren't blithely ignoring that message. I think this is a you know, a, a kind of a conflict between people's very strong views and principles about racism and what's been going out uh, on in the world and, and the treatment that uh, African-Americans have suffered at the hands of a lot of police and um, their health. And a lot of people have made the choice to go out there and put their uh, health and potentially the health of other people at some risk. I will say I, I, I don't will... dispute that. I'm just saying that it's pretty hard 
hard to maintain that message about the virus when so many people are out there. It's yeah, just, although although I, I don't know, I don't know yet the, that it's a that it's an inflection point, some kind of turning point in terms of attitudes towards social distancing. We we will see. First of all, we'll have to see whether there are going to be significant spikes. We don't know. I mean, we, we now, for the first time, at least on the East Coast, have a lot of warm weather. We don't really know what the impact of warm weather is on this virus. The science about this virus has evolved over time, which is that it is less dangerous outdoors than it is indoors. And then secondly, it is certainly possible that if there are spikes and we see the numbers start to really go, go up again, that people won't go back to social distancing. So I think there are a lot of open questions. I will say that, you know, today uh, we're recording this uh, part of the podcast on Sunday. So the day after these uh, protests uh, here in New York, which, of course, was the world epicenter of the disease. And Governor Cuomo said, we aren't just flattening the curve. We have crushed the curve. Deaths are down to about 30 a day which is a huge drop. Hospitalizations have, have plummeted. Clearly, the social distancing worked, and I think it's, uh, it remains to be seen what happens going forward. But I think people have proven that they can do it once. I'm not so sure that, if necessary, they couldn't do it again. It remains to be seen. And, you know, we have already seen some upticks and actually, in some cases, sharp increases in Certain cities uh, in uh, Dallas and Houston has had a steady rise. You look at the numbers in North Carolina and they're climbing. You look at the numbers in um, Florida. They do seem to be going up. So we'll see. Yeah. And we'll we'll see what uh, doctors Gottlieb and, and Patel say. My guess is they're going to be quite concerned about this. But uh, Isakoff, you talked about inflection points. And I wonder if uh, there is another inflection point that we're seeing in these protests, because it seems like for the last few days, and particularly Saturday um, and Saturday evening, a lot of the violence that we had seen seems to have started to dissipate. There are clearly isolated cases of violence and some brutality. We saw the 75-year-old man knocked down in Buffalo, blood streaming from his mouth, and the cops just walking by him. They were fired and are being prosecuted. But largely speaking, these protests have become much more peaceful and less violent confrontations with the police. Uh, what's your view of that? Well, I mean, I, I think that's that's unquestionably true. But uh, for some of those in the uh, Trump administration, noticeably uh, Attorney General William Barr, he's still fixated on the violence and looting that did take place early on. And uh, I thought, the interview he did on Face the Nation was was kind of illuminating about how he sees the world and how he sees these protests and what prompted him to make that historic directive on Monday to clear out the protesters from Lafayette Park and expand the perimeter. Let's listen to an exchange that he had with Margaret Brennan of CBS on Face the Nation. In an environment where the broader debate is about heavy-handed use of force and law enforcement, was that the right message 
for Americans to be receiving? Well, the message is sometimes communicated by the media. I didn't see any uh, video being played on the media of what was happening Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But, all, but I, all, I heard was, all I heard was comments about how peaceful the protesters were. I didn't hear about the fact that there were 150 law enforcement officers injured and many taken to the hospital with concussions. Uh, so uh, it wasn't a peaceful protest. We had to get control over Lafayette Park. So you can hear there Barr very fixated, defending his conduct, his decisions, and very much fixated on the looting and the violence that was occurring early on. And very much fix, fixating on the big lies being perpetrated by the media. Look, yeah. you know, this Let's is all it's raise all, our hands. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always the case that, especially us, you know, in, in covering the news, that we are covering kind of dueling narratives. People see the world world in very different ways, very much shaped by their own personal experiences over time. And Bill Barr sees what has happened over the last couple of weeks in very, very different terms from a lot of other people. You know, his narrative is that the cops are good, by and large. There are some bad apples which need to be weeded out. That these protests, while a lot of them have been peaceful, he is fixated, as you say, on the violence and the looting. And and I also thought it was pretty interesting when he just dismissed the idea of a pattern and practice civil rights investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department. You know, you remember uh, a few pods ago, we had Benita Gupta, the former head of the Civil Rights Division at Justice under President Obama, talking about how this Justice Department has all but abandoned the kinds of investigations that she was doing when she was there into the systematic practices of particular police departments. She did it at Ferguson. She did it at Chicago. She did it in some other cities. And Barr just sort of offhandedly, there's no need for that. Um, We don't need to do that. You know, let's let the state and locals take care of that. Well, I I have a little bit of a, I think, insight into his thinking on this because I talked to a friend of his recently. And, you know, it does come from a pretty ideologically fixed view of, of the law. And of the role that the that the federal judiciary should play, I think what he believes is, you know, these pattern and practice investigations under the Obama administration they have led to consent decrees where essentially, you know, the Justice Department kind of takes over police departments, imposes all sorts of reforms that these police departments have to do. And these consent decrees are overseen by federal judges. And Barr thinks that the judiciary, the unelected you know, judiciary has uh, is too involved in police departments, uh, and that uh, it is not their role. They are exercising, you know, too much power, unaccountable power, and they should basically butt out. So, shouldn't, shouldn't he take comfort from all the conservative judges Mitch McConnell has rammed through, uh, <laughs> who uh, judges who no doubt share Barr's larger philosophy of the law? Yeah, well, I don't think he's taking any chances. So yeah. I just uh, I don't think we're going to see a new Obama a new era holdovers. Who, yeah, I don't think we're going to see a new era of uh, bar imposed uh, consent decrees on police departments around the country. 
This strikes me as an issue that that Biden will take up and in a forceful way saying, you know, if I'm elected president, this is the kind of steps I'll take to um, yeah. to root out the kind of racism. I mean, it's seen in it, many police yes, I agree with you. I, I also think this is tricky territory for for Biden. There is a, a a movement in this country to defund the police. Kind of the more radical take on that is that, that the police actually ought to be disbanded. I mean, kind of raised to the ground and rebuilt with a new philosophy. And I don't think that uh, Biden is going to be able to touch that. You can already see Trump tweeting that Sleepy Joe supports defunding the police. And um, I think Biden is going to be walking that line carefully because there are a lot of suburban voters out there that uh, might be concerned about going too far in that direction. So it'll be a test of his nimbleness uh, on these issues. Yeah. And we do have to discuss this uh, defund the police movement. Uh, We've got Alex Vitell, who's, I guess, a big promoter of it, coming on the pod on Wednesday to discuss it. We also have an excellent story by our Andrew Romano and Suzanne Smalley on this movement. Defund the police is one of those phrases that is clearly going to spook a lot of people. What are we talking about here? Are we talking about dismantling police departments or are we talking about shifting some funds away? It's a it's a sort of murky area and in cities like Chicago or Washington where you still have high crime rates and really unacceptable murder rates um, that disproportionately affect communities of color. I just wonder how politically saleable that slogan is. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky issue. But I will say that if one of the things that comes out of these protests is a, a conversation, a civil conversation and thoughtful conversation about those kinds of policies, how far to go, what the limits should be or shouldn't be, you know, that's a good thing. We shall see. But right now we have an important conversation to have about what all this means for COVID-19, where we are with uh, Drs. Gottlieb and Patel. So let's get to it. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are now joined by Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, and Kavita Patel, our regular Yahoo News health analyst and uh, former Obama administration public health official. Doctors Gottlieb and Patel, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Me too. Thanks, Mike. So I just wanted to uh, start out to you, Dr. Gottlieb. You were on, I think, CNBC May 22nd, and you talked about how the country could return to some degree of uh, normalcy by the summer. And now since then, we've had these waves of protests in light of the death of George Floyd with um, thousands of people in streets across the country, 
not adhering to social distancing restrictions. How worried are you right now that this is going to upset the apple cart and cause you to revise what you were saying just a few weeks ago about the country getting back to normal? Well, to take a step back in terms of the outlook from, you know, two or three weeks ago and from that, that May interview on CNBC, you know, I really thought we would get back to what I was defining as a new normal, that we were going to get back to um, an environment where the summer was going to provide a seasonal effect. Coronaviruses are typically seasonal, so they don't spread as efficiently in hot, humid weather, so we'd get the benefit of that. And if we practiced good techniques in terms of, you know, personal hygiene, hand washing, wearing masks when we went out, trying to reduce our activity, to move as many activities outdoors as we could, and as many social activities outside where we know the risk of transmission is less, that we could define a new normal where we wouldn't see an acceleration in cases and we sort of would have a, perhaps what I was referring to as a slow burn through the summer. Cases wouldn't come down a lot, but they wouldn't go up. What we've in fact seen since then is cases really bounce around 20,000 a day. They're starting to go up a little bit more now. We see some states that where cases are accelerating, and not just new cases, because we can't really look just at new cases because we're, we're doing a lot more testing, so we're going to diagnose more cases, and we're probably diagnosing a higher percentage of the total cases in the country. Before, we were probably diagnosing somewhere between 1 in 10 or 1 in 20 cases. Probably, we're now doing better than that. We're diagnosing at least 1 in 10 cases. But you're seeing hospitalizations go up, too, in certain states. When you look at Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, you're seeing some worrisome trends even before events of the past week. Now, the events of the past week where you saw very large groups gathering, people were still, you know, you look at the pictures from those those gatherings, those protests, you still see a lot of people wearing masks. Um, presumably, people are still taking precautions in those gatherings, but they certainly create risk. They certainly create additional risk that you could have new chains of transmission coming out of those events. We're really not going to know and see the consequence of that for a number of weeks. Ultimately, you need a couple of you need a couple of replication cycles until you start to see the implications. Let me just ask you some very uh, kind of a practical question about this because we are often find ourselves in situations where we have to try to reconcile as best we can conflicting imperatives. And for a lot of people, obviously, everyone's health is a huge imperative. But for a lot of people, going out and protesting and expressing their values and dealing with these issues of justice is is also a powerful imperative. So what specifically would you say people who feel compelled to go out there and protest should do? to protect themselves and to protect people around them. What can you do? Well, do some of the things that you saw people doing in, in those gatherings. You saw a lot of people wearing masks. You saw a lot of people wearing high-quality masks. You know, try to engage in a level of social distancing to the extent possible. You know, not, not get grouped up really close, but try to maintain some distance. It's obviously, an act, it's obviously something people are doing outside, so there's less underlying risk. Um, than doing something in a closed setting indoors, but there's still risk uh, because you're bringing together large groups of people, and the risk is going to correlate with uh, the background rate in the population. So in a lower prevalence part of the country, the risk would be lower than a higher prevalence part of the country, meaning you know, a part of the country or a state that's already experiencing a large outbreak, the risk is obviously higher because there's a higher percentage chance that there are people in the crowd who are going to have the infection and risk transmitting it. And these are, by and large, when you look at the pictures, there's a lot of young people in these crowds. They're obviously more likely to be asymptomatic and, and not have outward signs of infection. So that increases the risk that you have asymptomatic spread within those 
um, within those gatherings. And so uh, people obviously felt compelled for all the reasons you said to go out and protest. They knew the risks. A lot of people took precautions. There's things to get to the underlying essence of your question. There's things you can do to reduce your personal risk by practicing, you know, those good tactics like wearing a mask, trying to uh, distance where you can. But just to pick up on this, I wonder, and I'd like to expand this to both of you, Dr. Gottlieb and Dr. Patel, do you appreciate how this could come across as mixed messages? Just a few weeks ago when we saw the demonstrations in Michigan and elsewhere for people demanding that the economy be opened up, there was a sort of almost universal decrying those protesters for violating basic social distancing restrictions. And they would argue they were protesting to support their livelihoods to open up the economy so people can continue to work and make a living. And now we're hearing somewhat muted messages about the dangers of that. And I just want to read you a couple paragraphs from a Politico story today. For months, public health experts have urged Americans to take every precaution to stop the spread of COVID-19. Stay at home, steer clear of friends. Now some of those same experts are broadcasting a new message. It's time to get out of the house and join the mass protests against racism. Quote, we should always evaluate the risks and benefits to control the virus. Jennifer Nuzzo, a John Hopkins epidemiologist, tweeted, in this moment, the public health risks of not protesting to demand an end to systematic racism greatly exceeds the harms of the virus. That sounds very different message from a public health expert than we were hearing just a couple of weeks ago. Well, look, I'm not going to speak for the people who are in that article. I think it's important from a public health standpoint that we send consistent messaging. And I think the messaging is that engaging in activities where you're bringing together large groups of people and not practicing um, good social distancing, not practicing mask wearing, creates risk of uh, spread. And I think we're going to see some chains of transmission get lit from these gatherings, and we need to understand that. Now, people who went out into these groups I think, by and large, did so knowing the risks and felt compelled to uh, to protest given the events of the past week. But that doesn't change the underlying equation that it creates risk. Kavita, can you weigh in on that? Yeah, because this is actually something that keeps coming up, but it's probably, for at least me personally, incredibly frustrating because the first, to Scott's point, the messages have been the same from even myself, like if you're, first of all, if you're going to protest or do any of this, which by the way, in the first waves of protests around reopening or having opposition to wearing masks, for example, that was actually in direct violation of recommendations. So what you see now are people not only kind of doing, of course you see images of people that are not wearing masks and not socially distancing, but not a single one of us have ever kind of said, yes, go out, it's your right to protest and put others in harm's way. And I think that's to me the important message. And the reason I think you're hearing a mute, kind of this muted message that was referred to in that article and probably from some others who are kind of incredulous at this quote double standard, which I don't think is a double standard, is because the very nature of what has driven people to accept a risk versus people who did not believe there was a risk, but the nature of this kind of latter stage of, I'll call it just peaceful protests or desire to kind of, you know, you saw police officers kneeling 
wearing masks six feet apart as well. So that has come and culminated at a time that has a very different kind of message. So the message from health officials, Scott, others, people who are leading statewide governors, for example, has not changed. I think what's different about now is you have doctors actually today while we're filming this at one o'clock Eastern, there's actually a kind of a nationwide healthcare workers kind of, you know, safe protesting. And it's really out of an abundance of frustration with events. Very separate, I think, Mike, and important to point out, very separate from the health messages, which both times, both waves have been about the concerns in spreading this virus. And, and just to add to what Scott said, I think the only thing I would add is that if you are protesting, even in a safe environment and doing everything you can, if you're in a household where you have a risk or you're worried you came into contact with someone at risk, which is a lot of people, you have to do your best to get tested, you know, five to seven days later, or at least isolate yourself. And so I think you're seeing a lot more kind of recognition of that risk up front and also an acknowledgement that they, despite these risks, want to protest in a safe manner. I want to go back to where we began, which is where we are in terms of the spread of this disease or containing it. And, you know, despite falling in New York and nationally, cases, I think you mentioned, Dr. Gottlieb, in 20 states, it's climbing. So the first question is why and to what extent is that because we've lifted restrictions, relaxed our attitudes toward social distancing and other measures? And tell us what you think, and then, um, uh, Dr. Patel, you should respond as well, about if and when a second wave may come and how prepared we are for that. Well, look, I, we, we expected cases to go up as we reopened the economy. That's why a lot of states prescribed very staged reopenings where they were going to do this in phases and in assess if hospitalization rates were going up. I think we always expected cases to go up. I think that, you know, given events of the last couple of weeks and the sort of acceleration in the reopening in a lot of states that still had a lot of infection, probably cases are going to go up more than perhaps we anticipated. And the question is going to be, will this sort of summer backstop be enough to offset the relaxation of the social distancing and the um, the sort of back-to-work effort? I think there was a, there's, a, there's some exhaustion among the population. We've been doing this for two or three months. It's been hard. It's had a big impact on people's health, on their economic lives. And so, you know, it's going to be hard to maintain even the discipline as people go out. The challenge that I see, and I'll sort of pause here, but is that if we, we that we have a bump up in the cases, we don't have an epidemic again, doesn't become epidemic over the next couple months, but cases either bounce around where they are now or they go up a little bit more. And we have this sort of slow burn through the summer where every day we're turning over 20, 25,000 cases. If we take that into the fall, that's a very big risk because in September we're going to want to go back to school, back to college campuses. People are going to be back in offices. Businesses are going to want to restart more in earnest coming off the August breaks. And that's a lot of risk to be taking into the fall for a second wave. And that's what I worry about, that we, we never really crush the infection. We have this slow burn through the summer, and it sets us up for a very difficult fall COVID slash flu season. So you could imagine, how likely do you think it, it, it is that, for example, schools won't be able to open up in September? And for that matter, both political parties have their national conventions at the end of the summer. Do you think that it would be wise at this point to do virtual conventions? Well, we'll see. If you look at the 2009 H1N1 season, the flu pandemic, that 
became, that was epidemic all the way through June, and it collapsed in July and August as there was a seasonal effect with that flu, notwithstanding the fact that that was a very novel flu where we had no cross immunity. And then towards the end of August, last week in August, and you look at the charts, into September, it accelerated. It just took off and became epidemic again. This could potentially follow a similar pattern. We don't know. We just don't know yet. But I think if in July and August we maintain the current levels of infection or perhaps come down from here, but probably maintain the current levels, I think there'll be an attempt to reopen schools in the fall and college campuses and restart activity. And we'll go in, into it with the hope that we could maintain a sort of that level of infection with the case-based interventions, the testing, the tracking, the tracing. I think that's going to be very hard. If we take 20,000 infections into September, trying to keep up with that as we get into the flu season with you know testing and tracing is going to be challenging. Because remember, it's not 20,000 infections. It's probably 200,000 infections because we're not turning over all the infections. Kavita, I don't know what your thoughts yeah, are no, on that. The only thing I would add to that, to augment it, just, Dan, I, by the way, I'll just say I don't think anybody is going to you know, want to have a huge convention in person, high security necessities just by nature of political conventions, no matter what we are. But in a year of a pandemic and on kind of the heels of this uncertainty in the country, it just doesn't make sense. So I do think there's going to have to be some component that's in person. But the majority of the convention, particularly the way we've, we've done things, are going to have to happen separately. Uh, do you do you agree with that, Dr. Gottlieb? What specifically? Well, uh, Dr. Patel just said, don't expect there to be in-person, maybe very limited in-person conventions, but we're going to have to do it essentially virtually. I don't know. I mean, I haven't had discussions with, uh, with anyone about the convention specifically, but I, every indication I get from just reading the public reports is the Republicans uh, intend to go through with a uh, big in-person convention and are looking for a venue that will accommodate that. I think it's partly going to depend on what, what the situation looks like in the fall. But if, you know, I think probably the, the base case is that we see this slow burn through the summer, that infections hover around 20, 25,000 a day that we're turning over. Um, we don't we don't see it accelerate, but we don't see it diminish. And I think in that kind of environment, there's going to be a lot of pressure to go through with some form of an in-person convention. And then the only thing I would add is just that for the fall, for the second wave, I mean, we're learning more about the kind of proportion of these infections that really originated in nursing homes or at least high-risk places that are predictable. So I really do hope that despite a pretty infectious virus that could be even worse than this first wave, that we'll at least have, you know, to Scott's point, kind of the testing, we'll at least have a little bit more of a better surveillance system combined with a better reaction to the actual, we can predict on in a way where these infections could pop up by then. Kavita, I want to return to a subject I asked you about the last time you were on a few weeks ago and also get Dr. Gottlieb's thoughts as well. Like many people, I obsess over the numbers. I look at them many times a day, state by state, and I still have a hard time seeing a correlation between the numbers of cases and deaths and the way the states have imposed social distancing restrictions. Everybody was focused for a while on Georgia because they opened up early on. When I look at total cases per 1 million population, 
Georgia is 4,695. Then you look at states which have had much more rigorous restrictions. Maryland, 9,390 cases per million, almost twice what Georgia has. Michigan, more, 5,832. State by state, I do not see empirical evidence that what the governors are doing in terms of restrictions and lockdowns is reflected in the numbers. So please, both of you, tell me what I'm not seeing or why I'm wrong. Well, a couple of things. I'll say it's not that you're wrong. It's that the data is, one, you have a lag in testing. If you actually look at per capita testing between the two states, for example, or even cities, take Atlanta and Baltimore, you will see about three times the testing done in Baltimore than it was done in Atlanta when Atlanta reopened. And a lot of that you can look at by the kind of positivity rate. So that's it's number one, it's not apples to apples on some level. And then number two, there is actually, again, I keep kind of going back to this high risk element. If you actually look at Seattle, Baltimore, and some of these incredible hotspots in Atlanta as well, they do originate from kind of a kind of a, a constellation of places, including nursing homes. So I do think, and this is why I think Scott mentioned it, I think others have mentioned that it can be a dangerous fallacy to the point of you not being wrong, but the way we look at this data can be wrong, that if we're just looking at the sheer gross numbers, that does not tell the underlying story. And in particular, I would argue that in Georgia, for example, as well as parts of the Southeast, the lack of testing and that we still, I would say, Scott can disagree with me. I would argue we still don't know kind of when the index case occurred, kind of the community spread and when the first case, we're now backtracking and saying, well, we thought it was Seattle, February 20th. Oh, in fact, it was earlier. And I, I actually still think we're kind of piecing together the epidemiology of this virus. So the point made about governors and lockdowns, we do have statistics from geolocation across the country that shows even for like that small period of time, having the kind of stay at home orders echoed by the White House actually did matter. So I do think probably the most important data point for me um, was this national call to stay at home. And that is where you saw a dramatic decrease. Dr. Gottlieb? I think you have to look at it from the context that you look at New York, the tri-state region, which implemented some of the most significant mitigation steps. They were very heavily seated, had a major epidemic underway, very heavily seated from travel from Europe. And it's fair to say they, they crushed the epidemic. They, the, they had the biggest epidemic in the United States, and you've seen the New York region come sharply down the epidemic curve to the point where now New York's reporting fewer hospitalizations a day than the state of Georgia. Mm -hmm. The state of Georgia, by comparison, wasn't as heavily seated, but never crushed their epidemic. They've had persistent spread and a persistent level of cases that, in fact, looks like it's trending up now. And so they've had this sort of slow burn. They've maintained a base level of infection and never really crushed the epidemic. Now, the question is going to be whether or not you need to really crush the epidemic and drive cases all the way down to set up lower risk for the fall or whether we, we still are going to be at equal risk for the fall. What's your advice on that? My advice is I think you really need to get to a point like Japan or South Korea where you, or Germany where you effectively extinguish spread so you can get back to a baseline of very little spread to set up a situation for the fall where we could potentially avert or mitigate a second wave. I think taking a lot of infection into the fall when the conditions are more ripe for spread 
is very risky. Dr. Gottlieb, I want to ask about vaccines. We, we've heard a lot of kind of all kinds of conflicting things about uh, a potential COVID-19 vaccine, that early trials are uh, extremely promising, that the process is moving faster than it ever has before. But also uh, you're hearing some experts saying that there may never be an effective vaccine. So what's your view on this? Should we be optimistic uh, or pessimistic? And I guess if you had to predict uh, where we'll be next year in terms of a vaccine, what would you say based on everything that you know right now? Well, I think that all the data that we've seen, and granted it's very early data from the animal studies, the primate studies, as well as early human data on several vaccines now, suggests that we can get a vaccine to COVID-19. And six months ago, we weren't sure that we'd be able to develop a vaccine, whether you can use a vaccine construct to induce uh, durable immunity in, in a human against this virus. And I think the answer to that question is you can, based on the early data. So we're going to be able to develop, I'm hopeful we're going to be able to develop a vaccine for this. I think that the platforms that we're taking forward the five that have been selected so far are all very novel platforms. Three are, are viral vector platforms and two are mRNA platforms. And what that means is three of them use viruses that are modified to deliver the protein that's on the surface of the coronavirus that we want the body to develop immunity against. That's a very novel way of developing a vaccine. The other two are mRNA vaccines, including one by Pfizer, which I'm on the board of. And what those vaccines are built off of are platforms where what you're delivering to the person, to patient, is a sequence of the genetic information from the coronavirus that codes for that same protein. So by giving that genetic material to a person, that person's body then takes up that genetic material and starts to manufacture on their own that protein, and then your body develops antibodies against that protein. And the coronavirus protein that we're talking about here is the spike protein, the protein that the coronavirus uses to invade our cells. cells. These are very novel vaccine technologies, and, and because of that novelty, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of things that could delay these programs. There's still potential theoretical risks associated with them. And so you know, we're going to have to wait and see how quickly we can advance these programs. I think in a best case, a licensed vaccine is really an early 2021 event in a best case. We'll have the vaccine stock available by the end of this year because we're starting to manufacture it at risk. But the big trials to determine whether or not it's safe and effective definitively, I don't think could be completed until early 2021. The question is going to be whether or not the FDA makes them available under an emergency use authorization before those trials are fully read out. Whether if we have an epidemic this fall, the vaccines are made available for select populations under an EUA, under that emergency use authorization. And I think there's going to be tremendous pressure to do that if, in fact, we have another epidemic heading into the fall. I wanted to ask you both, uh, you know, we've had so many conflicting studies, reports about various aspects of this. And I was really struck this week when The Lancet, which uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's one of the most distinguished medical journals around, published the uh, article 
stating that hydrochloroquine had led to a spike in deaths among patients who had received it. This is the drug that President Trump has promoted, uh, as, as well as Fox News personalities. Lance had retracted that this week and said that the uh, data was suspect and they needed uh, further material to see if it could be verified. And, you know, it just l led me to think that there are so many instances here where we see accounts on one side or the other on all aspects of this that then get modified. What did you, how did you both react to having the Lancet retract a major article like that? And what does that tell us about we, what we still don't know about this disease? Do you want to take that? Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll... I, I actually happen to know two of the authors of that study. So it, it was something that I kind of followed both when it came out originally and then kind of through its narrative arc. I wasn't involved in the study. I just happened to know who they are and have become had been acquainted with um, the company that they referenced, which was the source of the data. So I'll, I'll just say this. I think that it's incredibly important to kind of focus on the science. So Honestly, all partisan politics statements by the president, statements by, you know, even the counter kind of statements about how this might be crazy just because the president said it. I put all that aside and really look at the body of the evidence. And actually, both Scott and I are both trained as internists. We, I'm familiar with this drug just because I've used it in patients with chronic conditions for years. And it has a safety profile warning that even before all of COVID, I'm pretty, you know, it was pretty crucial. So putting all of that aside, leading up to this Lancet article, um, kind of looking through the body of data, it was, I was hopeful that we would understand more about when this drug could be used safely, if it could be used safely, and then when it shouldn't. And I felt pretty comfortable, not just after the VA study, but a couple of the other, the VA was not randomized, but a couple of other kind of controlled trials that this was not a drug that you should use unless you're in a study or unless you really understood the risks. And that actually kind of cemented my clinical suspicion was. Now, kind of my, the, the Lancet article, what's unfortunate about this is that I think you're seeing across the kind of the body of science, you're seeing a desire to get the best evidence out there as quickly as possible. And I think this is a clear case where they felt like it was uh, the best evidence. And then when it was called into question, they couldn't verify it through a third party, retracted it. It's not the first time it's been done. So I'm not making an excuse for the journal, but I would just say that for me, it puts it aside. And I still have a preponderance of evidence that show that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine are just not beneficial. And so I think that's where I land on this. And I think it's important to have a clear message to the public that the, the kind of retraction of this one study does not eliminate the findings of other very credible studies, which now have compounded the evidence that we see. Having said that also, Mike, there are still open trials on this drug. So this is not I don't think the story is totally finished, but for me as a physician, I have no need to spend more time on this. And I, I think there's enough promising treatments to move on, quite, quite frankly. Dr. Gottlieb, your former agency, the FDA, early on approved emergency use for hydrochloroquine. Your thoughts on that and the Lancet article? Well, I agree with Kavita that the, the uh, evidence that's come out of more rigorous studies has not demonstrated 
that this drug is effective against uh, COVID-19. There was one very rigorous study that came out just this past week looking at the drug for prophylactic use for, pre for preventing infection in people who are at high risk of exposure and didn't show any benefit, so it should not be used prophylactically. A lot of a lot of people were using it that way, including providers in both Italy and, and the U.S. And the uh, data that we've gotten so far from more rigorous studies has not shown a treatment benefit. And in fact, when you talk to providers in New York in particular, they were prescribing this very widely early on, and they pulled away from doing that because they're just not seeing a robust treatment effect in their own um, clinical practice. Now, that's obviously anecdotal, but doctors do get a good get a sense of whether or not drugs are having a treatment effect when they're prescribing it widely to patients. And so if this is having a treatment effect, it's not a, a one that's so robust that it's easily detected in the open label studies that have been done to date or in you know the collected clinical practice. Now that said, there are a number of rigorous studies underway that are gonna read out this month. The data safety monitoring boards of those studies have done interim looks to make sure patients weren't being harmed to make a decision on whether they were going to stop those trials early, including one in Europe, those trials were allowed to go forward. So that suggests that there's not a strong signal that patients are being harmed, but that doesn't mean that there's a signal that they're being benefited either. And so we're just going to have to wait for those trials to read out and allow a careful scientific process here to unfold. I don't think anybody should be using hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of COVID outside of a clinical trial. And I think if those trials read out negatively, the FDA is going to have to closely evaluate pulling that EUA. They're probably at the point right now, based on the data that's available, where they should go back and, and re-examine the EUA that's been granted already. But if they're not going to pull that now and they're going to wait for those trials, they certainly should do it on, on the basis of those trials if, in fact, they read out negatively. Was the FDA wrong to have approved it? I don't think that there was um, sufficient evidence to uh, to support an EUA for this drug based on the, at the point in time in which they did it. It was on the basis of some very small um, series that don't form the basis of, of reliable um, clinical experience. Now, that said, the drug was being widely prescribed, and it was being prescribed outside of settings where we were collecting good data in many cases. And what the EUA required, and I don't know if this is being adhered to, but what it required was the collection of clinical evidence. And so if the drug was already being used widely off-label and was available, but was being used in the absence of, of protocols that could collect reliable evidence to determine ultimately whether or not it was safe and effective for that purpose, that might have been the judgment that was made. I don't know how what the judgments were in terms of the internal deliberations on granting an EUA, but that would be one reason and one consideration that the agency might make in granting the EUA, that uh, it, would, it would force the collection of information. But if you're asking me whether or not the data available at the time supported a finding um, that this drug could be beneficial in this context, I think that data at the point at which the decision was made was very mixed. I've got one last question, for, for, and this is for both of you. We are once again engaged in a wrenching conversation in this country about racial disparities, obviously in the wake of the, uh, the killing of George Floyd and uh, the more generally uh, criminal justice system. But in the weeks and months before this, uh, there was a lot of discussion about inequities in the healthcare system and how COVID-19 was falling disproportionately on African-Americans and people of color in, in this country. We are now many months into this pandemic. 
We've talked to Kavita about this, but I would like to hear from both of you what your thoughts are now about what needs to be done to close this uh, healthcare divide um, in this country um, over this issue and more generally. Kavita, why don't you start? Sure. And I think I have to give Scott a lot of credit here because he's been pretty, I think, pretty on point about about three areas that contribute to this. Number one, it has to do with a lot of like kind of the implicit biases that we find in healthcare. It's been studied since the dawn of time about how a person of color, when they present for care, how they often, even an un- unconscious bias, kind of it received from the system. I think the second is a real critical point around healthcare access, and and it's everything from lack of access, lack of insurance, or lack of the ability to kind of seek care without sensitivities to cost or out-of-pocket costs, all the way to the fact that, like in in Washington, D.C., where I live, that if you go into the communities of largest African-American proportion, you will find, you know, only a handful of primary care clinics and no hospitals anymore. So I think, and then finally, I think also just we know that there are a higher proportion of, you know, chronic conditions, diabetes, hypertension, undiagnosed conditions in persons of color. So I think those are three points. I'm kind of stealing Scott's points, but I think he's made them publicly trying to shine a light on this for all people. And I guess for me, what it's tried for, I don't think any of this is new to healthcare. We all know it. I think the critical question is, what do we do about it? And I think part of this now, I'm going to put a lot of responsibility, not just on you know, federal and state administrators, but I would also say this is like local hospitals, people who are already experiencing financial losses, they really do need to rethink how they do kind of community-based care and community outreach. And even with protesters, Dan, if all we do is tell people to get tested, the city of Philadelphia, you know, recommending governor of California, if all we do is tell people just go get tested, not acknowledging that that does, that didn't even happen in the beginning because of these issues that Scott's brought up in the past, then we're just missing the point. Dr. Gottlieb, what, what do you want to add, particularly in terms of the prescriptive piece of this? Yeah, look, I, I, I think when we, we look at COVID risk in particular among um, Black Americans and Hispanic Americans and the disproportionate impact that this disease has had on those communities, I think we're seeing the impact of of the inequities that Kavita refers to, um, and that people are now, you know, bringing even more attention to. Although these are these are persistent problems, systemic problems that we've long recognized and haven't been able to reconcile. And hopefully, this time is different. I think when you think about the, the dimension of this problem it, with respect to COVID and also healthcare more generally. You have to ask yourself first, why are there higher rates of COVID disease among among black Americans and Hispanic Americans? You look at um, census tracts that are identified as disproportionately black in in this country, that one in five counties are identified that way. They represent 35% of the total population of the country, but 50% of the COVID disease and 60% of COVID deaths. So clearly a disproportionate impact. So why, why are there higher rates of disease among these communities in the first place? And why are there higher rates of serious disease and bad outcomes when when people of color get COVID disease. I think, you know, the first has to do with 
uh, economic factors, economic-related factors, people who, you know, are forced to live in crowded housing, who rely on public transportation, who work in essential jobs at a higher proportion where they, ha- they, couldn't, they couldn't zoom in for two months. They had to go to work. They had to take public transportation to work. Um, they couldn't social distance at work because they worked in jobs where, where they were required to work in, in settings where they didn't have proper PE, PPE. And so there was a higher rate of infection and a lack of disposable income to do things like stockpile groceries. So, they had, so people had to go out more. So there were income-related issues. The second, um, why is there a higher rate of, of when, when you have this higher rate of disease, why is there now a higher rate of severe disease and serious disease and excess morbidity and mortality in these same communities? I think that has to do a lot with the issues that Kavita was talking about, poor access to health care, uh, racism in the health care system, distrust of health care, sometimes discrimination in the health care system, as well as, you know, more underlying chronic disease, oftentimes relating back to those first factors, the economic factors, because, you know, you have higher rates of diabetes and hypertension and heart disease because, you know, people coming from communities where there there, um, aren't whole foods, there aren't uh, opportunities to engage in more healthful living. So these these are systemic problems. This isn't the first time we've brought attention to this. This isn't the first time we've recognized this. They're, they're going to take time to fix. I think if you ask what can we do in the short run to resolve some of this or address it, not resolve it, but start addressing it in the context of COVID and mitigating the risk for that, that of the summer and the fall, I think the one thing you can do in the short term is make sure that you get the COVID-related screening and treatment into these communities, and particularly the testing, um, because when you have medically and socially underserved communities uh, and, and communities that are, are more vulnerable, at higher risk of contracting the, the disease and at higher risk of a bad outcome of, disease, of the disease, we have to get the screening into those communities. And right now, when you look at the, the, the sort of distribution of testing, it's not there. So I think that that is one thing that if, I, if you ask me, what can we do in the next two months? That's something we can do, get testing into medically and socially underserved communities. Dr. Gottlieb, I got one last question for you. We were ta- I wanted to bring you back to the numbers. You were saying you're expecting that we'll probably see numbers of about twenty to 25,000 new cases per day through the summer. Uh, what about deaths? We're now coming in at about 1,000 a day, a little bit more midweek, a little bit less uh, towards the weekends. What do you foresee in terms of the numbers of deaths we'll be seeing through the summer and early fall from this disease? Yeah, I think the deaths are trending down and you, when you look at the trend. So we're, we're on a trend line for below 1,000 a day. I think, what, I think you're likely to see deaths trend down but sort of plateau somewhere maybe around 500 because what's going to happen is if we – if we sort of stay on this slow burn, if you will, and I know I've used the phrase a couple times, where we're turning over 20,000 cases a day, but testing's continuing to go up, which it is, we're going to be turning over more mildly symptomatic, asymptomatic community cases that are less likely to result in hospitalization and less likely to result in death. So the overall morbidity of COVID might go down more, even if the cases stay stagnant, because we're diagnosing more of those milder cases, and we're not just diagnosing cases of people who get admitted to the hospital, which is what we were doing a month ago. So I would expect to see deaths continue to come down, but plateau somewhere, maybe around a sort of 500 level or a little bit below that. 
All right. On that somewhat better news um, than some, a lot of the bad news, I want to thank you both for joining us. Kavita, always great to have your insights on this. And Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate you um, coming on and hope you can come back. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks to former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb and Yahoo News medical contributor and former Obama administration official Kavita Patel for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.